Lesson 5. The Kingdom of God, God's Plan in World History. Master Texts. I quote, God said to Abraham, Look all around you, from where you are towards the north and the south, toward the east and the west. All the land within sight I will give to you and your descendants forever. Come, travel through the length and breadth of the land, for I mean to give it to you. That's in Genesis 13, verses 14 to 17. Another quotation, God said to Abraham, Here now is my covenant with you. You will become the father of a multitude of nations. You will no longer be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. I will make you into nations, and your issue will be kings. I will establish my covenant between myself and you and your descendants after you, generation after generation, a covenant in perpetuity to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. I will give to you and your descendants after you the land you are living in, the whole land of Canaan to own in perpetuity, and I will be your God. That was Genesis chapter 17, verses 3 to 8. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. That's Galatians chapter 3, verse 8. Another quotation. If you, that's to say Israel, obey my voice, and hold fast to my covenant, you of all the nations will be my very own, for all the earth is mine. I will count you a kingdom of priests, a consecrated nation, and that is in Exodus 19, verses 5 to 6. Another quotation, if you are a Christian, then you count as descendants of Abraham, and you are heirs of the promises made to Abraham, that is. You'll find that in Galatians chapter 3, verse 29. Kingship and possession of the land of Palestine formed the basis of God's covenant between himself and the chosen people, represented initially by Abraham. The royal function of Israel depended, however, on their obedience. How far they succeeded in living up to the high ideal demanded of them is documented in the Old Testament history of the Israelites. It was often a story of failure to meet God's standard. David, being the exceptional example, despite, of course, some lapses, and David was an example of rulership exercised in cooperation with God. The prophets of Israel were also Find models of obedience to God and service in his great kingdom plan. As we have seen, Israel's national hope kept burning even in times of oppression by their enemies was that the ultimate ideal king, the Messiah, would eventually bring about the golden age of world peace so vividly predicted by the prophets. With the dawning of that great day, the kingdom of God would come. We know that prayers for the advent of the kingdom were being offered continuously in the synagogue at the time when Jesus began to preach. It's impossible not to notice the close affinity of this prayer with the so-called Lord's Prayer. I quote, Magnified and sanctified be God's great name in the world which he has created according to his will. May he establish his kingdom in your lifetime and in your days and in the lifetime of all the house of Israel, even speedily and at a near time. As a distinguished German theologian says, quote, the true background to Jesus' teaching is to be found in Jewish thought concerning God as ruler and upon his kingdom as the manifestation of of his kingly activity. That quotation is from Johannes Weiss in his book, Jesus Preaching of the Kingdom of God. 
Weiss claims that this is the dominant emphasis in the Old Testament, and he shows that such an emphasis carries with it the thought of conflict with a worldly or human kingship. The conception is that God will demonstrate his kingship by an act of judgment against the whole worldly kingship. Against this background, we can see that it was natural for the prophets, when they proclaimed the great crisis that was to come, to do this in the form of a proclamation of the coming of a mighty act of God as king. The hope expressed in the prophets is for the coming of a mighty kingly activity of God, whereby his people would be redeemed, his enemies and theirs destroyed, and the present evil state of things, compare with that Galatians 1 verse 4, this present evil age, all of this would be totally and forever reversed. It is this hope which lies behind Jesus' usage of the term Kingdom of God. That quotation is from Norman Perrin's book, The Kingdom of God in the Teaching of Jesus. Man destined to be ruler. The subject of the Christian gospel, the Kingdom of God, has its roots deep in the Hebrew scriptures, somewhat unfortunately known to us as the Old Testament, since many professing Christians think of old as practically equivalent to discarded. It is well to remember that Paul referred to the Old Testament as, quote, the sacred writings which are able to give you, Christians, the wisdom which leads to salvation through faith which is in Messiah Jesus. That's a quotation of Paul from 2 Timothy 3, verse 15. To be a Christian, therefore, we must acquire the wisdom and understanding found in the sacred revelations of the Hebrew part of our scriptures. The very first command given to man was, quote, to rule and rule over all the earth. Genesis 1, verse 26. We see here the start of the golden thread of the kingdom which runs throughout the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Adam was assigned a position as God's vice-regent, made in the image and likeness of God. Genesis 1, verse 26. Man is a facsimile of God, a representation which corresponds to a model. The word image means, quote, a hewn or carved statue such as an idol, a sculpture. Both image and likeness are expressions which point back from man to God. God shows himself as the prototype and original of man. That's a quotation from Friedrich Horst in an article called Face to Face from Interpretation magazine. The psalmist sings of the exalted position conferred upon man by God. What is man that you're mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you've made him but little lower than God, and crowned him with glory and honor. You make him to have dominion over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet. That's from Psalm 8, verses 4 to 6. Honor and majesty are the attributes of a king. Psalm 96, verses 6, 10, and 13. Clothed with honor and majesty, God is coming to rule the world. Man, therefore, is created to be God's representative ruler on earth. The problem is that, quote, we do not yet see all things subjected to him. That's in Hebrews 2, verse 8. But man is once again going to rule the world properly when Jesus comes back as the promised second Adam. The hope for just government on earth. The tension between the, quote, present evil state of things in Galatians 1, verse 4, and the hope of the coming kingdom of God 
gives a sense of excitement and drama to the whole Bible. A coherent plot, so to speak, runs throughout the scriptures. Adam is created with a divine office. He, quote, sells out to Satan after being outwitted by the cunning of the devil, who is the arch-villain of the drama. The first pair thus, quote, vote for the evil ruler, and this tendency to submit to Satan is perpetuated in subsequent generations. The accumulating rebellion reaches a crisis in Genesis 6, where evil angelic beings, called sons of God, compare Psalm 29 verse 1, Psalm 89 verse 6, Daniel 3 verse 25, and Job chapter 38 verse 7, as well as Job chapter 1 verse 6 and chapter 2 verse 1. These sons of God, angels, interfere with the human genetic system to produce a race of giants. This terrible condition on earth calls for a world catastrophe at the flood in which only eight persons survive the judgment. The descendants of Noah do no better than their predecessors. A second race of tyrants is born from the hybrid angelic human so-called marriages. See Genesis 6 verse 4, Numbers 13 verse 33, and see also Jude verse 6 and 2 Peter 2 verse 4. The divine solution for rescuing man from his apparently incorrigible wickedness lies in the promise of the so-called seed of Abraham, that's to say Christ, as found in Galatians 3 verse 16. The hope for ultimate deliverance from satanic governments 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4, Satan is the God of this age, will be fulfilled only when the, quote, seed of the woman, Genesis 3 verse 15, puts an end forever to our present evil world systems. This will happen when ownership of the earth passes to its rightful heirs, Christ and his faithful followers. Dominion over the earth was destined for man in Genesis. That rule will become a reality when the second Adam, man as he was intended to be, takes over the kingdoms of this world. Revelation 11 verse 15. And he then rules in the midst of his enemies. Psalm 110 verse 2. With the Messiah at that inauguration of a new world government will be, quote, those who volunteer freely in the day of Messiah's power. Psalm 110 verse 3. His freshly invigorated people, enjoying new life as resurrected immortal beings, will assist Jesus in his task of establishing the new society on earth. I add this, all contemporary so-called New Age movements and groups promoting the dominion of the Church prior to the return of Christ are dangerous perversions of the biblical scheme for bringing peace to the world. Abraham, the land, and kingship. The promise of the land, Genesis chapter 13, verses 14 to 17, as above, as a possession was made to Abraham on condition that he give up everything in obedience to God. Genesis chapter 12, 1 to 4. Abraham, the father of the faithful, is the so-called model Christian, demonstrating his faith in the unseen God. He is commended for his confidence that despite every evidence to the contrary, Romans 4 verse 18, he would indeed be the father of the promised Messiah. His inheritance included the kingdom of God, which was nothing less than the promised land extended beyond the boundaries of Palestine to the far corners of the earth. 
I quote, For the promise to Abraham, or to his seed, that he would be heir of the world, was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. That's Romans 4, verse 13. The paraphrase given by the International Critical Commentary on Romans gives the sense exactly. I quote, The promise made to Abraham and his descendants of worldwide messianic rule, as it was not dependent on circumcision, so also was not dependent on law, but on a righteousness that was a product of faith. If this worldwide inheritance really depended on any legal system, and if it was limited to those who were under such a system, there would be no place left for faith or promise. End of quotation from the International Critical Commentary on Romans. The worldwide messianic rule from this quotation is a synonym for the kingdom of God which is the principal theme of the Christian gospel. Luke 4, verse 43, Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, Acts 8, 12, Acts 19, verse 8, Acts 20, verse 25, and Acts 28, verses 23 and 31, and so on. It must follow that Jesus and the apostles announced, quote, the worldwide messianic rule, and when they proclaimed the gospel. It is a rule waiting to be publicly manifested at the second coming. All attempts to force it into the present, except in the sense that the power and spirit of the future kingdom are already active in advance because Jesus now sits at the right hand of the Father, all attempts to force it into the present are dislocations of the biblical scheme and account for the massive confusion which exists on the subject of the kingdom and thus about Christianity itself. We are to pray, quote, Thy kingdom come. This means that the kingdom has not yet come. Acts 7 verse 5 states simply that Abraham, during his lifetime, did not receive, quote, a square foot of his inheritance. Yet God promised him that he would receive it. I quote, God promised that he would give it, give the land to him, Abraham, and to his descendants after him. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 to 13, should be read carefully. I quote, by faith, Abraham, when he was called, went out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. By faith, he lived in the land of the promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. All these died in faith without receiving the promises. They were looking for the city which is to come. We find this in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 to 13, and Hebrews 13, verse 14. Note that the city is coming to the earth. The patriarchs did not go to it. It should be most carefully noted that the patriarchs lived in the place which was promised to them. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 and nine, the place that they would one day inherit. That place was not, quote, a realm beyond the skies, but a land situated on the earth. It is the earth which is destined to be ruled by God's people. The grand central theme of all scripture is the promise that the ideal government will be brought to the earth when Jesus, as Messiah, seed of Abraham, and David, Matthew 1, verse 1, returns to rule in the kingdom. It is time for Bible readers to, quote, hear and grasp the significance of their calling as, quote, children of Abraham, co-heirs and prospective co-rulers with the Messiah. 
Matthew 5, verse 5. Blessed are the gentle, for they will inherit the earth. Revelation 5, verse 10. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. Revelation 20, verse 4. They came to life in resurrection and ruled as kings with Messiah for a thousand years. 2 Timothy 2, verse 12. If we suffer with him, we will reign as kings with him. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 21. All things belong to you. Hebrews 2, verse 5. God has not subjected to angels the inhabited earth of the future, which is our theme, but he has subjected it to Jesus and his followers. Psalm 115, verse 16. The heavens are the heavens of the Lord, but the earth he has given to the children of men. Revelation 2, verse 26. He who overcomes will rule the nations. Luke 19, verse 17. Take charge of ten cities. And Matthew 25, verse 23. Rule over many things. Psalm 112, verse 1 and 2. Psalm 111, verse 6, and Psalm 113, verses 7 and 8, I quote, How blessed is the man who fears the Lord! His descendants will be mighty on earth. He has made known, I'll say it again, He has made known to his people the power of his works by giving them the heritage of the nations. He raises the poor from the ash heap, to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 12, Walk in a manner worthy of God, who is calling you into his own kingdom and glory. Emphasis should be placed on the fact that it is the, quote, gentle who are destined for this bright future. Those believers who continue to threaten their enemies and fellow believers in other lands with nuclear extinction should question whether they belong to the category of which Jesus speaks. Even King David was disqualified from building the temple because as a man of war he had taken the lives of others. First Chronicles 28 verse 3. There's an important lesson here for the Christian church. The Sermon on the Mount sets out the qualities of character and behavior acquired in those who hope to inherit the kingdom. Obedience through the Spirit is demanded by Jesus. I quote, Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. Matthew 7 verse 24. A popular form of so-called dispensationalist theology menacingly declares that the, quote, Sermon on the Mount is not church truth precisely. That's from John Walford's commentary on Matthew. It would be hard to think of a more glaring contradiction of the words of Jesus than this. We must state plainly that the so-called Sermon on the Mount is precisely truth for the Christian church. Truth without which it's impossible to enter the kingdom. John the Apostle was well aware of teaching which claimed to be, quote, Christian, while it denied what Jesus taught. If anybody does not keep within the teaching of Christ, but goes beyond it, he cannot have God with him. Only those who keep to what Jesus taught, can have the Father and the Son with them. 2 John verse 9. In this connection, the words of a Quaker leader writing in 1676 may help put the point clearly. I quote, Whoever can reconcile this, resist not evil, with resist evil by force, again, give also thy other cheek, with spoil them, make a prey of them, pursue them with fire and sword, or 
quote, pray for those who persecute you, compared with persecute them by fines, imprisonment, and death itself. Whoever can find a means to reconcile these things may be supposed also to have found a way to reconcile God with the devil, Christ with Antichrist, light with darkness, and good with evil. The kingdom of God seen by the prophets. In previous lessons, we have quoted extensively from the Hebrew prophets to show that they spoke constantly of a coming time of peace for mankind under the supervision of the Messiah, God's chosen King. The great turning point in history will occur when Jesus, quote, returns in the same way as he departed to heaven, Acts 1 verse 11. Every word of the New Testament is designed to exhort us to maximum effort as we prepare for the event destined to affect the greatest ever change in world politics. Ezekiel writes of a time when God will, and I quote, take the sons of Israel from the nations where they've gone. I will gather them together from everywhere and bring them home to their own soil. I will make them into one nation in my own land and on the mountains of Israel. And one king is to be king of them. They will no longer form two nations, nor be two separated kingdoms. They will no longer defile themselves with their idols and their filthy practices and all their sins. I will rescue them from all the betrayals they have been guilty of. I will cleanse them. They will be my people and I will be their God. My servant David will reign over them, one shepherd for all. They will follow my observances, respect my laws and practice them. They will live in the land that I gave my servant Jacob, the land in which your ancestors lived. They will live in it, they, their children, their children's children, forever. David, my servant, is to be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace, an eternal covenant with them. I will resettle them and increase them. I will settle my sanctuary among them forever. That's a quotation from Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 21 to 26. Mountains of Israel, you will grow branches and bear fruit for my people who will soon return. Yes, I'm coming to you. I have turned to you. You will be tilled and sown. I will multiply the men who live on you, the whole house of Israel. Yes, all. The cities will be lived in again and the ruins rebuilt. I will multiply the men and the animals that live on you. There will be many of them, and they will be fertile. I will repopulate you as you were before. I will make you more prosperous than you were before. And so you will learn that I am Yahweh. Thanks to me, men will tread your soil again, my people Israel. They will have you for their own domain and never again will you rob them of their children. I will never again let you hear the insults of the nations. You will never again have to hear the taunts of the foreigners. It is the Lord Yahweh who speaks. That was from Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 8 to 15, as translated in the Jerusalem Bible. Hosea's vision of the glorious future of Israel is no less inspiring and clear. First, God urges the people to repent. I quote, Israel, come back to Yahweh your God. Your iniquity was the cause of your downfall. Provide yourself with words and come back to Yahweh. Say to him, take all iniquity away so that we may have happiness again and offer you our words of praise. Assyria cannot save us. 
we will not ride horses anymore or say our God to what our own hands have made for you are the one in whom orphans find compassion. I will heal their disloyalty. I will love them with all my heart for my anger has turned from them. I will fall like dew on Israel. He will bloom like the lily and thrust out roots like the poplar. His shoots will spread far. He will have the beauty of the olive and the fragrance of Lebanon. They will come back to live in my shade. They will grow corn that flourishes. They will cultivate vines as renowned as the wine of Helbon. What has Ephraim to do with idols anymore when it is I who hear his prayer and care for him? I am like a cypress over green. All your faithfulness comes from me. Let the wise man understand these words. Let the intelligent man grasp their meaning. For the ways of Yahweh are straight and virtuous men walk in them but sinners stumble. That's a quotation from Hosea chapter 14, verses 1 to 10, as translated in the Jerusalem Bible. When that day comes, the mountains will run with new wine and the hills flow with milk, and all the riverbeds of Judah will run with water. A fountain will spring from the house of Yahweh to water the wadi of Acacius. Egypt will become a desolation, Edom a desert waste on account of the violence done to the sons of Judah whose innocent blood they shed in their country. But Judah will be inhabited forever, Jerusalem from age to age. I will avenge their blood and let none go unpunished. And Yahweh will make his home in Zion. That's a quotation from Joel chapter 3, verses 18 to 21. These promises will find fulfillment after the great day of the Lord described in the previous verses. Joel 3, verses 15 to 17. The destiny of Israel is similarly mapped out by Amos. I quote, Yet I am not going to destroy the house of Jacob, or Israel completely, it is Yahweh who speaks. For now I will issue orders and shake the house of Israel among the nations, as you shake a sieve so that not one pebble can fall to the ground. All the sinners of my people are going to perish by the sword. All those who say, no misfortune will ever touch us or even come anywhere near us, that day, that's to say following Jesus' intervention at the day of the Lord, I will re-erect the tottering hut of David, make good the gaps in it, restore its ruins and rebuild it as it was in the days of old, so that they can conquer the remnant of Edom and all the nations that belong to me. It is Yahweh who speaks, and he will carry this out. The days are coming now. It is Yahweh who speaks. When harvest will follow directly after ploughing, the treading of grapes soon after sowing, when the mountains will run with new wine and the hills all flow with it. I mean to restore the fortunes of my people Israel. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them, plant vineyards and drink their wine, dig gardens and eat their produce. I will plant them in their own country, never to be rooted up again out of the land I've given them, says Yahweh your God. That's from Amos chapter 9 verses 8 to 15 in the Jerusalem Bible. The Restoration of All Things The powerful sermon delivered by Peter shortly after the day of Pentecost ended with a typical challenge to repentance. The formula of evangelism is no less appropriate for our time. 
I quote, Now you must repent and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, and so the Lord may bring in the times of refreshment. He will send you the Messiah, whom he has predestined, that is, Jesus, whom heaven must keep until the universal restoration comes, which God proclaimed, speaking through his holy prophets. That's from Acts chapter 3, verses 19 to 21. The key word, restoration, conjures up for his audience the whole complex of promised blessings of the Messianic age to come. Only a short time earlier, the disciples, who were fully-fledged exponents of the gospel of the kingdom of God, Acts 1 verse 3, they had inquired with obvious excitement, I quote, Is this the time when you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? That's from Acts 1 6. The time for the great restoration was not revealed, for Jesus himself had declared his ignorance he really did not know, Mark 13, verse 32, a fact which should put an end to any claims that he was omniscient. Jesus did not know about the calendar date of his return to inaugurate the kingdom. The fact of the coming restored kingdom was, of course, never in doubt. The exact time was not part of God's revelation those signs of the impending world transformation were given in detail by Jesus in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21, basing his predictions on already existing forecasts in Daniel. Jesus had spoken daily of the life of the age to come, which is inadequately rendered in our versions everlasting life or eternal life, showing signs of a Greek paganizing influence and a loss of the vision of the kingdom. In the new world of the kingdom, the apostles are to enjoy positions as ministers of state in the messianic rule. For that, see Matthew 19, verse 28. In Acts 3.21, Peter assures the nation and those of us who become part of the new Israel of God, the church, Galatians 6, verse 16, that the whole world will experience the universal renewal when the Messiah, who is temporarily retained in heaven, returns to take over the reins of power. Had not Jesus declared that he was born to be king? I quote, yes, I am a king. I was born for this. I came into the world for this to bear witness to the truth, and all who are on the side of truth listen to my voice. John 18, verse 37. This is John's parallel to Luke chapter 4, verse 43, where Jesus described his whole purpose as being the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom. Before Pilate, Jesus stated, that bearing witness to his position as king of the kingdom was the reason for his whole mission. The preaching of the kingdom and of Jesus as king is, quote, the truth. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. The kingdom of which Jesus spoke is, quote, not of this world, John 18, verse 36. A powerful propaganda campaign has for too long prevented ordinary Bible readers from hearing the meaning of the phrase, not of this world. Tragically, they have been persuaded to believe that Jesus' kingdom will never be located on planet Earth. With a single verse, many seem to want to contradict the vision of all the prophets and many New Testament texts describing the coming of the kingdom of God to this earth. Jesus meant that his kingdom does not have its origin in the present evil system, quote, the world. The reason for this is simple. Satan is the ruler or prince, acting, of course, only within the limits prescribed by God, 
Satan is the prince of all governmental systems organized prior to the coming of the kingdom at Jesus' return. This is fundamental to biblical Christianity and declared over and over again in the New Testament. Satan said, quote, I will give you all this power and the glory of these kingdoms, for it has been committed to me, and I give it to anyone I choose. Worship me, then, and it will all be yours. As from Luke chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. 1 John 5, verse 19. The primeval serpent, known as the devil and Satan, is deceiving the whole world. Revelation 12, verse 9. The Christian's battle is against the sovereignties and the powers who originate the darkness of this world, the spiritual army of evil in the heavens. Ephesians 6, verse 12. The nature of the deceptive tyranny of Satan is far more subtle than many recognize. It extends deep into the field of so-called religion, in which, quote, counterfeit apostles, dishonest workmen, are disguised as apostles of Christ. There's nothing unexpected about that. If Satan himself goes disguised as an angel of light, there is no need to be surprised when his servants, too, disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. You'll find that quotation in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 to 15. The hope of life in the promised land. The New Testament is saturated with the hope that Jesus will return to relieve the world of its mounting pressures and problems. Because, quote, the love of many will grow cold as the end of the age approaches, Matthew 24, verse 12, there is a greater urgency than ever for penetrating Bible study and consequent Christian behavior based on the teaching of Jesus. To sustain the faithful in their darkest hour, God has given the assurance of, quote, the joy which was set before Jesus, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. This was the hope of a life of immortality to be enjoyed in the kingdom of God, the promised land. How little the importance of the land is understood by modern readers of the New Testament. Pagan notions about an immortal soul which departs to heaven at death have all but destroyed the biblical hope of resurrection into the promised inheritance of the new earth. A leading scholar describes the fundamental importance of the land in biblical faith. I quote, In the original promise to Abraham, the content of the promise consists of progeny, blessing, and the land. Further, Israel is to become a great nation. Thus, the promise is made to foretell the rise of the Davidic Empire, the covenant of Yahweh with David at his installation at Hebron, 2 Kings 5, verses 1 and following, reflects the installation at Hebron, and it reflects the Abrahamic covenant. The promise of the land to Abraham was absorbed in the Abrahamic covenant. The divine promise to Abraham was the bedrock on which all subsequent history rests. The whole of the Hexateuch, as to say the first six books of the Bible, in all its vast complexity, was governed by the theme of the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham in the settlement of Canaan. The chief purpose of this work was to present in all its biblical and theological significance this one leading conception, in relation to which all the other conceptions of the Hexateuch 
assume an ancillary role. Of all the promises made to the patriarchs, it was that of the land which was most prominent and decisive. For the Hexateuch, the land is the promised land, and that inviolably. The Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, remained the bedrock of revelation for the Jews. The promise of the land is embedded in it. Disobedience to the commandments of Yahweh through intermarriage with the inhabitants of the land of Canaan would inexorably incur the withdrawal of Yahweh's support and the loss of the land. One thing seems clear. Concern with the land and hope for the land emerges at many places in the Old Testament outside the Hexateuch. While the promise was regarded as fulfilled in the settlement, see Acts 7 verse 17, the promise to Abraham was partly fulfilled, that settlement was not regarded as a complete settlement. See Acts chapter 7 verse 5, Abraham never received the promise of the land. Promises which have been fulfilled in history are not thereby exhausted of their content but remain as promises on a different level. The promise of the land was proclaimed ever anew, even after its fulfillment. Promise and fulfillment inform much of the Old Testament, and the tradition, however changed, continued to contain the hope of life in the land. That quotation is from W.D. Davies in his book, The Gospel and the Land. Jesus, whose teaching is rooted in the Old Testament, did not for one moment abandon the hope of a renewed earth. Indeed, his whole purpose was to stir men and women to reorientate their lives now in preparation for the coming of the promised land of the kingdom of God. This is the challenge of the Christian gospel, which promises that the meek will inherit the land. Psalm 37, verse 11, cited in Matthew 5, verse 5. A single united theme binds every part of Scripture together. Its central structure is the mandate of rulership given to man. Genesis 1, verse 26, renewed to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in Genesis 12 and following chapters, confirmed in the house of David, 2 Samuel 7, and reaching its climax in the promised Messiah, Jesus. Little wonder, then, that Matthew presents Jesus as, quote, son of David, son of Abraham, Matthew 1, verse 1. Nor is it surprising that Luke builds his two treatises, Luke and Acts, around the promise of the kingdom and the things concerning Jesus, Luke 1, verses 32 to 35, and Acts 8, 12, and Acts 28, verses 30 and 31. The biblical story concerns the issue of dominion. Who is to be in charge of the earth? Man's inability to create a righteous society on earth can be remedied only by his acceptance of the rule of Jesus. First in our lives now, and finally, as a world government coming to power at the return of the Messiah. Such, in short, is the good news or gospel of the kingdom of God, the Christian gospel. Entry into fellowship with the one God of Israel through his Son, the Messiah, begins with belief in the gospel of the kingdom as well as the acceptance of the atoning death of Jesus to blot out our sins. Repentance involves belief in and commitment to the biblical revelation about God's plan in history revealed from Genesis to the Apocalypse or Revelation. This includes, as is well known, the substitutionary death of Jesus for our forgiveness. Jesus died in our place. Baptism in water follows intelligent belief in the good news. Acts 8, verse 12. 
Subsequently, we must persist to the end in hope of our inheritance of the earth. Matthew 5, verse 5, which is the same exactly as the inheritance of the kingdom of God. 2 Peter 1, verse 11. That inheritance lies definitely in the future. It cannot be received until the return of Jesus. In our next lesson, we hope to demonstrate that the kingdom of God in the Bible is first and foremost the kingdom destined to arrive at the future coming of Jesus. Only secondarily, and in a different sense, may it be said that the kingdom of God is already present. Much confusion could have been avoided had we taken as axiomatic the statement of Luke 21, verse 31. I quote, When you see all these things, cataclysms connected with the end of the age, when you see all these things happening, then know that the kingdom of God is about to come. That's from the Good News Bible translation of Luke 21, verse 31. I end with a quotation. It was the beautiful dream of Hebrew prophecy that in the latter days the kingdom of God or the kingdom of the Messiah should overlap the bounds of human empires and ultimately cover the whole earth. Prophecy was never weary of telling of the golden age she saw in the far future when the shadows would lift and the new dawn would steal over the whole world. It is not unlikely that the term kingdom of God was one of the current phrases of the times, a golden casket holding within it the dream of a restored Hebraism. That quotation is from Henry Burton's commentary on St. Luke.